to watch the progression. Husbands and wives, parents and children, and you know where it ends up? Masters and slaves. Why is that? Because slaves are part of the household. You see the same thing in Colossians. So the kind of slavery that's being talked about here are household servants. And this could vary widely too. Household servants could rise to leverage of, uh, levels of great responsibility. They could often buy their freedom. Sometimes a slave or a servant was an indentured servant. They had a debt to pay off. When the debt was paid off, they were freed. But you get the picture. This was uh, Onesimus was a family member in an extended family. That's the way these things were seen. So it's different than we're thinking about it. It's common in the Roman world. And you'll see, I'll, I'll wind down later with a text out of 1 Timothy in which um, Philemon's going to be addressed. Philemon, treat your servant this way. But Paul also tells slaves, Christian slaves with Christian masters, treat your masters this way also. So super common. We don't look down our nose at these Christians. This was the time and the place they lived. They were both commanded, you'll see, to love one another. So freedom, as we understand it, especially in the States in this time, much different world, much different time. So we're not looking down our nose at Philemon. Okay, that's my point. This is, this is part and parcel of the world he lived in. Okay. Okay, so now, clear that aside. <laughs> Take the slavery issue aside for just a minute. What kind of man was Philemon? Look at verse 1. Paul says, our beloved brother, our fellow worker, and verse 17 he says, Paul's partner. Philemon is a guy who's invested in the gospel and in the life of the church. Fellow worker and Paul's partner. He says, if you consider me your partner. So this guy's invested. Verse 2, he opened his home as the meeting place for the group of believers. So he's the one hosting the potlucks or the weekly meetings or whatever. This is the norm in his household. Uh, verse 5, Paul says, I hear of your love and faith that you have toward Jesus and all the saints. What's he characterized by? He's characterized by love and faith. Verse 7, I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. The people that know Philemon are encouraged because he's characterized by love and faith. And when Paul interacts with people that know Philemon, He's encouraged because the impact Philemon has had on them. Verse 21, Paul's confident Philemon will do the right thing. He knows that in sending the letter, I can count on Philemon to do the right thing. And then verse 22, Paul knew he could count on Philemon to put him up. So Paul's assuming he's going to be released. He's going to be back in the area of Colossae where Philemon lives. And he says, by the way, would you have that room ready for me? When I show up, would you put me up when I can get out again? Philemon was also the wronged party in this letter. So Paul is not excusing what Onesimus did. And Onesimus appears to have stolen something and fled. And so Philemon is the wronged party in this. And that's actually why Paul's writing him. It's not just a master-servant relationship. Philemon is the wronged party. Verse 11, if Onesimus has wronged you or owes you anything, infers that he had. Again, just have the wherewithal, the means to get from where he was to Rome was a long, arduous, expensive journey. And guys, we need, we need men like Philemon. 
Uh, would anybody say of us the name that says we're characterized by love and faith? If we're hanging out with each other and someone uh, interacts with the people we're hanging out with, are they encouraged because those folks we're interacting with have been encouraged because they've spent time with us? That's the kind of man Philemon was. I hope that's true of many of us as well. Uh, the way Paul approaches this issue is twofold. So he speaks in the language of command briefly, and then he speaks in the language of appeal. If you look at verse 8, Paul says, I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Verse 21, I am confident of your obedience. Remember, Paul's an apostle, and he has apostolic authority. He has authority from Christ to say things to people that most of us don't have. In, he was Christ's chosen apostle, and so he says, I do have authority, and I could command you to do what is right. I have authority to command, and you should do it. If I command you, you should do it. He has that authority. And he speaks of obedience, verse 21, even though he's going to defer to an appeal, he's still saying, I'm confident you'll obey and you'll do the right thing. And we want to make clear, lots of places in the epistles, Paul is giving Christ's commands. They're not suggestions, right? So in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives is not a suggestion. It's a command. Passage in 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul tells the church, you've got to remove a guy from fellowship. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. So he has authority to speak and command with Christ's authority, and he infers that here. So he says, I could do this, and if he did, it would be the right thing to do. He doesn't stay there, though. And so he's going to defer, and he's going to end up with appeals. On one hand, he mentions his authority to command Philemon what to do, even within his own household. Remember, Onesimus is part of the extended household of Philemon. And he's going to do so based on what's required, and we'll look at that separately in verse 8 in a minute. Uh, he's going to appeal to Philemon based on the imperatives of love instead. And this is, again, why Onesimus' conversion changes everything. Because he's not who he was before. He's not where he was before. He's a new person, and that has a new set of requirements for Philemon. Paul will invite Philemon to forgive and embrace Onesimus in the bonds of brotherly love in part by demonstrating the bonds of love in his own interaction with Philemon. This is one of the things you see. It's exemplified here. Um, authority in Jesus' church or in your household or your family or your place of employment, authority is best exercised in the bonds of affection and love. Sometimes mere authority is required. If you have small children, we tell small children what to do. We command small children. The older those small children get and grow, the more commands are set to the side and the appeals begin because we want their character form. And that's exactly what you see here for Paul because he tells Philemon, I want you to want to do the right thing. That's why he's appealing. But sometimes we simply listen to the language of command. God says do this or don't do that. We tell small children do this. It's a command. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. Do this. Don't do that. But the older they get, appeal becomes or should become the norm as they become young adults and they're getting ready to leave our homes. <coughs> the appeal you see at verse 8 I'm bold, and verse 9, I'm bold enough in Christ to command you what to 
uh, what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. And listen to the loaded language here. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I detain in my imprisonment. Verse 12, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Paul is using emotionally laden language because that's what he wants to attest in Philemon. He doesn't want to just say this is the right thing. He wants Philemon to be emotionally engaged both towards Paul and towards Onesimus. So verse 9, he says, for love's sake. Uh, you know, sometimes we can do the right thing because it's the right thing. We can do so without love. We just say it's the right thing to do. I do it. But Paul's saying here, for love's sake, to have a heart of affection to do the right thing. Paul describes himself this way. Was this unfair, by the way? He says, I'm an old man. And I'm imprisoned. This is to elicit pity from, again, this is meant to be loaded. It's, to meant, it's meant to get Philemon's pity for Paul, to get him emotionally engaged. He says, my child Onesimus, I feel like a father. The guy we're talking about, he's not just your slave. I feel like he's my very own son. Again, this emotional appeal. In fact, he says, I'm so attached to him that as I send him back to you, I feel like I've taken the heart out of my chest and I'm sending my very heart to you. Does this sound slightly manipulative? Yeah, it did to me too, yeah. But he's, he's engaging him. He wants the emotions to come into bear, not just the conscience to do what's right, but the affections to do what's right. Paul speaks in the language of emotion, pity, love, and affection because that's the primary basis on which he wants Philemon to think and to act. Not just black and white, not just right and wrong, but a heart of affection, both for Paul and for Onesimus. This also comes up in verse 14, and I think this is important. I'm glad Paul included it, where he says, um, I could have kept Onesimus with me because he was helpful, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Again, he wants Philemon to do the right thing because Philemon wants him to, of your own accord. I think your study sheet has a reference to 2 Corinthians 9. So 2 Corinthians 9 is a key passage on giving. And it's in the context of a, a financial collection being taken up among Gentile churches for saints in and around Jerusalem. So he's specifically referring to finances in 2 Corinthians. But guys, this would apply whatever it is you and I give, that we're giving something away how do we view that? What's the mindset we're meant to have? And I'll just say briefly, verse 5 in 2 Corinthians 9, when we give, it's with a willing spirit it, it, that uh, our will is engaged. We want to do this. This is what we want to give. It's verse 7, it's bountifully, abundantly, not a little, not sort of how, how much can I give and get away with it, but I want to give generously or abundantly Verse 7, purposefully, this is something I've thought about. It's not on the spur of the moment. I've thought about it. I've prayed about it. I do this with purpose. Uh, verse 7, and this is what Paul was referring to, not reluctantly or under compulsion. You know, uh, guys, we don't take collections and lie in the wrong church. And this goes back a long way. We never wanted anyone that came in our door to feel like they were here so we could get anything from them. That's why we don't take collections. 
the church has always been great and generous in giving. People in this church have been consistently generous in giving. But we didn't want anyone to come in and think we want to get something out of you, that we've got a motive for having you here other than we want to honor Christ, we want to love and serve each other. So Paul's saying uh, in related to giving generally, when we give, it shouldn't be with the sense of, oh, I will because I have to. Oh, I will because I should. No, it's I will because I want to. Because it, And it ends on that last one, cheerfully. That when we give, we're giving cheerfully. We'll bring all that into what Paul's saying to Philemon on forgiving Onesimus. That's the thought where Paul says, I want it to be not by compulsion, but by your own accord. I want you to want to do the right thing. I don't know if you've ever instructed your kids, if you have kids that have raised kids, and when they're little, you tell them to do something, especially if it's in relationship to another sibling or another person, you can make them do the right thing. But the truth is you want them to see the right thing, and you want them to do the right thing because they want to. Because if you haven't done that, they're just a rules keeper. And what happens when somebody's not there to enforce the rules? Well, they're back to their heart and what they really want to do. So Paul's trying to inform Philemon's heart the same way we do with our children. It's not just we want to compel behavior, though that's a good thing when they're little. But the older they get, we want them to buy in to doing the right thing. We want them to have an affection and a willingness to do the right thing. So Paul's appealing to Philemon to do what's right based on love with the kind of motivation that's meant to inspire blessing and generosity to others. Uh, Look at verse 8 again, that phrase, uh, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. So on one hand, he says, "I, I could command you, I'm not. I'm appealing to you, but he says, what I'm appealing to you to do is only what is required. What I'm telling you, what I'm talking about, isn't extra credit, Philemon. It's not you're climbing a mountain and you get a gold star. This is what's required. This is what's expected. This is what's appropriate. That's what the word means. You see the same word used in Ephesians 5, 4, negatively. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place out of place, not appropriate, the wrong thing. Colossians 3.18 uses the same word. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting. It's required. It's not extra credit. It's, it's what should be done, period. Paul's commands and appeals are exhortations to inspire Philemon to simply do what is required, what is expected, not just by Paul. Remember, he's speaking as an apostle. He represents Christ what is right and what the Lord expects. If Philemon refuses to forgive and receive Onesimus back, as Paul is saying, he's in sin. Okay? It's not a nice suggestion. There's a command element, there's an appeal element, but it gets down to you're only doing what is required, what the situation calls for. Forgiveness and restoration isn't extra credit. It's required. Guys, think about this for a minute. We'll close on that thought too. Is that the way we think about people who've sinned against us? Forgiveness is required. Restoration, where it's possible on our end, 
is a given, not extra credit. Uh, you, guys <laughs> you guys ever feel, you know, if you're in leadership, by the way, you see this stuff all the time, right? All the time. And uh, leaders are keenly aware of who left the church and why. And, and more often than not, it's because somebody says, I'm not going to forgive, I'm going to cut my losses, and I'm just going to go someplace else. You know, in Matthew 18, it's a key, key passage in the New Testament on forgiveness. And it really shows forgiveness as a requirement. And I won't go into the, the story Jesus tells there, but, but in the context of forgiveness, Peter speaks up and says, Lord, how often should I forgive? Okay, forgiveness is the thing. How often should I forgive? Seven times? But it's a question. Seven times? Now remember, seven is the number of completion. It's the number of weeks. Peter knows this. So when Peter says forgive seven times, that sounds like extra credit, like as much as could be expected of anyone. And do you remember Jesus' reply? Seventy-seven times. In other words, you're going to lose count. So, so if your brother sins against you and he comes and he repents, you forgive him. How often? As often as is needed. It's a given. It's not extra credit. So if it's 10 times or 20 times or 100 times and it happens, trust is a, a different issue. I, so we can go all down lots of bunny trails here, which we're not getting into, okay? That's a lesson for another day, the difference between forgiveness and trust. Those are two different things. But forgiveness, it doesn't matter how often, what's required, forgive. And where it's possible, restoration, to be restored, to be willing to be restored as well. Here's the thing. Onesimus' conversion, his new status as God's child and Philemon's brother in Christ, changes everything. So Philemon is not free any longer to treat Onesimus merely as a servant. He's not free to because Onesimus is now more than a servant. He's a brother in Christ. And so whatever that relationship in the future looks like, it has to take into account, this is my brother in Christ, and however I interact with him, I have to take that into account. This is a brother. It's not just a servant. He's not a stranger. He's not just someone I order around. This is a fellow brother. This is one of Christ's child, one of the father's household. So it's changed the way I think about him. It's changed the way I treat him. By necessity, not as an option. The commands of God for Christian behavior toward other Christians was now binding on Philemon and on Onesimus. So Philemon must now see and treat Onesimus as what he truly was, a brother in Christ, part of the family. i got to treat him like he's part of the family. But check this out, too. This is from a different letter, so maybe I'm cheating. But this is where Paul speaks on the flip side of this as well. So this is 1 Timothy 6. Uh, it's in verse 1 and 2. But verse 2 says, Paul writing to Christian servant slaves. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and are beloved. So on one hand, he tells Philemon as a master, you can't treat him merely as a servant. He's a brother. You must treat him as a brother. Well, here, this is to slaves in Christian households. And Paul says, by the way, you can't diss that guy. When you, when you serve him, 
take delight in this, you're serving a fellow brother in Christ. So that in both directions, you see, that that brotherhood in Christ, status in the family of God, became the new directive. It directed all of the rest of their relationship. So conversion, inclusion in the family of God changed everything. We'll close on this. Uh, This is the gospel illustrated. If you look at that language again, Paul says in verse 17, Receive him as you would receive me. So when Onesimus shows up, act as if I'm Onesimus and receive him as you would receive me. Do you remember in Matthew 25, very different context. I'm not going to get into that. But where Jesus says that the sheep and the goat separation, and he says to some folks, you know, when I was naked, you clothed me and hungry and you fed me in prison and you visited me. And they say, when, Lord? And he says, well, when you did it to one of the least, you did it to me. That the way you've treated those other people is the way you've treated me. And guys, here's the thing. The way we treat fellow brothers and sisters in the faith is the way we are treating Christ. The way we treat each other is what we are doing to Christ. That's what he says. And Paul's inferring that here. When he shows up, see me. And embrace him and receive him the way you would me. And that's what Christ requires of us. That when we see each other, we are not free merely to see each other and diss this person or diss that person. We're to see Christ and we're to to treat them as if they are Christ. Same thing. At verse 18 and 19, (coughs) excuse me, Paul says, if he has wronged you, if he owes you anything, and he does, it's an inference, but he does, he says, charge that to my account. Whatever he owes you, charge that to my account. I'll pay his debt. Then he says, I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Now, Paul's sort of speaking big language here. Paul didn't save Philemon, but Paul probably brought him the gospel. He's probably nurtured him in the faith. And so he's leveraging that to make this point. So here's the formula. Onesimus is in debt to Philemon. Paul says he'll pay Onesimus' debt And as he does, he says, and by the way, you're in debt to me. So uh, Onesimus is in debt to Philemon. Paul will pay the debt. And Paul says to Philemon, and by the way, don't forget, you're in debt to me. So does that sound familiar? So we owed a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. Who are we indebted to? Christ. He forgave us. He paid our debt. We stand in debt to him, and what does he require of us to do to others? Forgive. So that's the thought. This is the gospel. This is the gospel in Philemon. On what basis does the Father forgive us and welcome us into his family? It's not on anything we've done, right? It's on what Christ did for us. He paid our debt we couldn't pay. Now, as the one who bore your sins and mine in his body on the tree, on the cross, he commands us and he appeals to us to forgive and receive back each other. He commands and he appeals. So for instance, and these are just singular examples, Ephesians 4, 
Paul wrote, let all bitterness, and, and please just think of our own attitude. Somebody hurts you, and I mean hurts you, one way or another. It hurt. It, it, it was a hit. Someone's hurt you. What does that feel like? What, what are the emotions that rise up immediately? Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath, wrath is a form of anger, a, a clamor, slander, the way we talk about others, be put away from you along with all malice, the desire to harm someone. They hurt me, and now I'm going to hurt them back. I have malice. I intend to get revenge. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So how did God in Christ forgive us? Fully, absolutely. That's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not extra credit. How do we forgive others? As God in Christ forgave you. How do we want God to forgive us when we've blown it? Guys, we've all blown it, right? <laughs> and when we go and we confess our sins, what do we hope God's doing? Forgiving us, cleansing us, which he says he'll do, and restoring us. That is the metric by which we are called to forgive others. As we've been forgiven, we forgive. Here's an appeal. Luke 15 is the story of the prodigal son. And you know, the prodigal dissed the father and took his stuff and went away and spent it all and comes back. And what does dad do when he sees him? Rushes out to meet him, falls on his neck, weeps because his son's back kills a fatted calf, throws a party, right? And older brother is seeing all this, and how's he feeling? He's not feeling the love, is he? But, but look what dad says. Dad says, in fact, it, uh, here's the language, verse 32, Luke 15. It was fitting. Now, it's not the same Greek word as in Philemon. It's required, but it's the same thought. It was fitting. It was required. It was appropriate to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and now he's alive. This is what we must do. And you remember this was spoken to religious Pharisees who are watching all these, these lowlifes come to faith in Christ and they're not, they're not going there. And they're not feeling the love. And they're like, we're above all that. And Jesus is telling them, well, you're not. Because these people are going from death to life and we must celebrate because they were dead and now they're alive. That's what we're called to. So you've got commands to forgive and you've got appeals to forgive. As God in Christ has forgiven us, that's the metric by which we're called to forgive others. Can you imagine, just for a minute, the health of the church, if those who were sinned against practiced this and forgave 77 times, forgave. What would the church look like? Friends, what would this church look like? This, I'm not talking about Sally, I'm talking about this church. What would our church look like? Or if we were serving each other, no matter who it was, and we were doing so with this affection and joy because the person we served was a brother or sister in the faith, one, and because they were Christ to us, because we were serving Christ in serving them, what would the church look like? If we are characterized by this call to love, to serve in the bonds of love, and to forgive in the bonds of love. 
that would be a good place to be. I wonder, I wonder if that's where we should go. I hope so. Well, if you would, rise with me. I'm going to read from Colossians 3. This is a parallel passage to the one we read from Ephesians. Let's read together. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 